Social Service Nadeshi. I'm Jing Yang. In 2020, Daryl Yang was named by the Straits Times as one of 30 young Singaporeans under the age of 30. He's been involved in human rights and political education, specifically LGBT rights and disability rights in the country. Today, we discuss his work with the Universal Periodic Review of the UPR. The joint UPR submission on Singapore's LGBTQ+ community, as well as his thoughts on faith-based change efforts and issues for the community beyond 377A. Daryl, you were you were named by the Straits Times, I think, last year as one of the 30 young Singaporeans under the age of 30. So you know, the newspaper described you as among the most outspoken of his generation on human rights and political education, and citing you co-founding the the student-run Community for Advocacy and Political Action or CAPE, and your work with LGBT groups and co-authoring and submitting two reports on the state of human rights, specifically LGBTQA rights and disability rights in Singapore to the United Nations. Human Rights Council. So, maybe with that preamble in mind, generally, tell us more about your interest in civic and political education and civil society research, and maybe give us a sense of when and how you got started. Thanks, thanks, Daniel. Yeah, I think the how I first got involved with civil society activism was really because of my own personal experiences coming out to people as a gay person and the kind of experiences with discrimination and also ignorance. And that kind of propelled me into, you know, other areas of civil society. So I got involved with migrant workers activism for a bit while I was in law school, and then I also got interested in disability rights later on in college as well because I was taking some classes around this field. And in terms of political education, that really started when I met other students who were interested in different social causes. And we realized there was generally a gap in among young people in Singapore in terms of understanding how political and legal processes work and how we can go about enacting change. So that really was how Cape was created because there was a group of us from across law NUS Law and Yola NUS College, among people who were involved with, you know, LGBTQ activism, the environmental movement. You know, sexual violence activism as well, and and so, given this kind of common frustration that we had, we decided to set up Cape to try to address this gap, and what the group really does is try to provide resources to other young people who are interested or who are working on various advocacy or social causes to to try to inform the, you know, methods that they use in their activism and to think about the different. Pathways that they can try to push for the change that they want to see. So, yeah, I think that that's kind of like the abridged story of how all of this got started for me. And when was um Keep founded? That was when you were in Yale NUS in the law school, right? When was Keep founded? That's right. So it was founded sometime around twenty seventeen. Like、mm-hmm. the group of us started talking about it around throughout twenty sixteen, I would say, and then we took about a year to kind of like. Conceptualize and and you know put together what the organization would look like, what we would do, and then we we officially got launched. Yeah, sometime in twenty seventeen. Yeah, because I was gonna quickly say we had, I mean, one of the 
more significant achievements of Kiev is that it's continued in, in four years and there must be a source of pride because one of the challenges is sustaining the, the organization. Of course, it benefits from being within or embedded within an institution of sorts, but but it was really it's been really active um, with the with especially since last year with with the COVID and then during GE twenty twenty as well. And so I thought that was important to point out. And of the many kind of other initiatives and projects in which you've been involved, I kind of want to focus on the work with LGBT your work with LGBTQA groups in, in Singapore, right? So Straits Times also mentioned your work with the groups and co-authoring a report to the UN Human Rights Council. So maybe to help us and then to also help me, what is the Universal Periodic Review or the UPR? We hear this all the time, but what is it, what exactly is the UPR? So the UPR is essentially a process where member states of the UN can give constructive feedback to each other in terms of their record and their progress on implementing human rights in, in their respective societies. So I think it really only got started quite recently, if I'm not wrong, like since the 2000s. And previously before that, the, it, it was a less, I, would, I guess, democratic process where you, know, you would have specific states that would be responsible for highlighting you know, what are different countries, you know, record on human rights. So like with, with the Universal Periodic Review, you know, member states at each cycle can engage with each other in a dialogue. So I think that that, will, that really helped to kind of change the dynamics within the international human rights scene and, and also to make like each member state responsible and more engaged in, in that process rather than, you know, having some countries being more, being like the the ones going after other countries to, to you know, improve their human rights record, however they may decide that that means to them, right? Because I think human rights is still very much a contested like set of ideas across different societies. And you, as, as we mentioned in the preamble, you were involved in, in co-authoring and submitting two reports on the state of human rights, right? So how were you involved in those submissions? We'll link those submissions in the show notes. And how did you get involved in the process and the review in the first place? So the two reports that I helped to prepare, one was joint report by Uga Chaga and Ping Dot on LGBTQ rights. And the other was by the Disabled People's Association. So uh, on, on disability rights. So how I got involved, I think with the joint report on LGBTQ rights, essentially the Ping Dot and Uga Chaga have been submitting, uh, had submitted a previous report in the previous cycle. And they, one of their members had reached out to me to see if I wanted to get involved because of my previous work with LGBTQ activism in university. So to kind of provide that youth perspective so with, the, with this report, you know, I was working mostly on um, education and also the youth issues that concern the LGBTQ community. So with the disability rights report, I had done my undergraduate thesis on disability rights activism in Singapore. And it's still kind of a new initiative because we only ratified the CRP, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities in 2013. So the idea of disability rights is still quite new in Singapore society. I think many disability organizations haven't really kind of, you know, got up to date with this concept yet. So DPA is one of, I think DPA is actually the only organization that did submit a parallel report, both to 
the Human Rights Council for the UPR, and also a parallel report on the CRPD for our first cycle, uh, for, for our first periodic review before the CRPD committee. So, so I was quite fortunate because I got connected with them when I was doing my undergraduate thesis and as part of you know, giving back because they, were, they allowed me to interview them and also their members. I volunteered with them to prepare um, their reports as well because you know, uh, I was able to use my legal training to inform some of the more, I guess, technical issues around um, various legislations. Yeah. And this is the, and, and, and I mean, we talked, you talked about the, the one for LGBTQ issues and then one for disability. I thought we could focus on the UPR, the third UPR we done in 2021 for LGBTQ issues, right? In addition to the very brief focus on section 377A of the penal code, the report itself details seven policy sections through which the basic human rights of LGBTQ Singaporeans have been violated. And they include, and we're just going to list them here. Um, first, the freedom of association and assembly. Second, recognition of gender identity. Third, LGBT plus media guidelines and censorship. Fourth, the education and well-being of LGBT plus youth. Fifth, employment discrimination. Sixth, housing and seventh, healthcare and social services, right? It's not that long a report and I highly encourage listeners to read the report, but for you, Daryl, which one or two sections is or are especially important to you personally from those seven we've just mentioned? I think, th- thanks for, you know, highlighting all the different sections. I think for me, the two most important sections would be the education and well-being of LGBT youth, uh, just because it's something that's closest to my heart. And I think the other one would be employment discrimination. So, so you know, essentially employment and education. And I think they all boil down to the same issue, which is the fact that there is no uh, protection against discrimination across the board. And this applies not only to LGBT people, but also other marginalized communities as well, like, like disabled people. So with you know, discrimination against LGBT youth uh, in schools, I think it has, been some, it has been an issue that has come up in our national like, media earlier this year with the experience of a transgender student being unable to pursue um, her education because of challenges with being able to dress according to her gender and also facing, you know, very unnecessary harassment and the lack of support from, from her teachers and, and the school administration. So I think the, the fact that there is no you know, recourse for those who face this kind of situations, except to go on to social media and really you know, try to highlight the, their, their plight. I think that that's one big challenge. I think the other one would be around sexuality education. So the, the lack of you know, representation in of, of LGBTQ representation in our sexuality education really does a disservice to young people because not only do like queer youth not receive like the information they need to lead you know, a healthy life, other non-queer youth will also lack the exposure to understand you know, their, their queer like, classmates and friends. So, so that is really a missed opportunity that should not that while we, we know why it is being erased, you know, because of, you know, larger social pressures, I don't think it's something that, you know, we should allow to stand simply because there are some in society who, you know, disagree or, or, or are uncomfortable by these topics. Yeah, because it, it really does like very real damage to, you know, young people. 
So, so I think that's one. And then I think with employment discrimination, I think it's quite straightforward because it is something that affects the ability of people to you know, support themselves and, and, and live their lives to the fullest, right? So this especially, I think, applies to those who present their agenda non-normatively. So I think often queer men and like cisgender queer men, uh, queer people might not face the same kind of challenges that trans people or people who are non-binary face because it is a lot more obvious and it's not, not something that you can hide, right? So I think that that is something that definitely deserves a lot more attention. And, and this is something that, you know, we need to talk about not only in relation to the LGBTQ community, because, you know, like I was mentioning, it's something that applies across the board to all marginalized communities. Like, we need an anti-discrimination legislation to make sure that nobody is discriminated against in terms of like hiring or promotion or dismissal on the basis of who they are. And, and not just in terms of whether they're queer, but also in terms of their race, their race, their gender, disability, HIV status. I think these are all things that need to be enshrined in law. And, and what we currently have with the TAFEP guidelines are definitely not enough. Yeah. And I guess that 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 intersectional approach you're alluding to is even more important given the recent developments around race and ethnicity in Singapore, which which you know has dominated headlines. I you talked about you know education and then employment. Another category which is under healthcare and social services, one of the subsections was focused on the continued existence of harmful conversion practices, right? The report stated and I quote over the years, many LGBT plus youth and adult clients seen by Ogachaga and the confidential counseling setting consistently report being subjected to these practices after being referred by religious leaders, social service, healthcare, or educational professionals, end quote. So this is a question you helped me craft, but what is the place for faith-based change efforts in Singapore and how should a balance be struck between these kind of faith-based efforts and the elimination of conversion practices in Singapore? Yeah, so I, I think this is something that is very tricky and might be less straightforward than uh, many people think it is in the sense that, you know, we want to ban conversion practices, right? I think that is quite straightforward. I think people can agree on that. But, you know, what that entails, like what kinds of conversion practices should be prohibited? I think that that is a question that many other countries probably are ahead of us in thinking about. So like with Canada, you know, they are thinking of implementing a, uh, a law that would ban conversion practices. And then in the US as well, there are certain states that have introduced such laws. So I think when, when it comes to faith-based efforts, it really is a matter of what kind of practices we are talking about specifically. So for example, if it is clearly stated to be you know, a religious ritual or practice, then I think that that is not something that really falls within the ambit of what would be prohibited. I think what would be prohibited would be practices that purport to be medical, uh, purport to have some kind of basis in professional practices like psychology or psychiatry or social work even. So, so I think that, that line needs to be clearly drawn because there is a need to, I think, also respect the freedom of an individual to seek out you know, attempts to do what they want with their, their relationship with the sexual attraction that they experience. And there, there, there's, a, I think, deeper conversation there around the difference between 
um, the sexual attraction that you feel and whether that necessarily equates to a sexual identity that you identify with. So, so I think that, that there needs to be that understanding that, and I think in this context, you're talking about specifically adults who are able to consent, right? If they wish to seek out certain efforts to be able to live with themselves in, to live with themselves and, and the, the you know, feel, sexual feelings that they do feel, then I think that that is something that needs to be respected. But, you know, when it comes to young people and also practices that purport to be professional, then I think those would be much clearer in terms of the fact that they should be prohibited because they are harmful. And in, I think in some jurisdictions are considered, you know, false advertising. I mean, I mean the way you couched it, there's so much nuance in that. Are we, I mean, this sounds like a leading question. Are we close to having a conversation like this? Or because I have in mind development in Singapore where the discussion is nowhere close to the nuance that you've just demonstrated, right? Being trying to, I mean, assuming content, someone can give content, trying to balance between the person's willingness to seek out particular services and then and an understanding of, of how their predilections might be understood in that sense. But is that, that nuance doesn't seem to be present in our current discourse. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think like you, you're very right to point out that currently the discussion around these issues is very black and white. And I think it's something that we really need to work on, I think, as a community in the sense that, you know, I think there are these conversations happening, especially over the past few years with the True Love East campaign uh, where people have been talking a lot about how um, the campaign essentially is promoting such conversion practices, right? And I think th that, that is the problem there where there's a lot of misunderstanding and a lack of dialogue between uh, across the, across this, I don't know what you would call it, across the line, I guess, like, you know, uh, yeah, between, between the two camps, if you would. Yeah. And, and I think the fact that there has be, have been these conversations, I think it's an opportunity for us to steer them in a more productive direction. And to say like, you know, because we, with the True Love East campaign, they have come out quite clearly to say that, you know, we are not endorsing harmful conversion practices. So I think there is at least that common understanding that we can build on to say that, yes, we agree that there are harmful conversion practices and it is quite clear that we you know with the collapse of Exodus in the US, which is, you know, the main like ex-gay conversion practices, you know, organization, that, that these practices are, are not acceptable. But if, you know, a person, because of their religious faith, chooses to believe that they are, they cannot act out sexual attraction, attraction to other people and want to find ways to be able to live with and, and negotiate their their sexual attraction in a different way. I think, and, and to seek out the support of religious leaders to do that, I think that is something that might actually be beneficial to those people because they are able to seek out those kind of support. And, and from my conversations with some friends who are both queer or, or experiencing sex attraction as, as they identify and are religious, there are existing like such support within certain uh, religious communities. And I think the goal between the queer movement and what these groups, what these religious groups are offering to folks is similar in terms of being able to help them to, you know, live their lives uh, to the fullest and, and in a way that is, you know, at least bearable in the current society that we live, with, live in. So I think that there are opportunities, that there exist opportunities for us to be able to carry this conversation forward 
and and I'm I'm really hoping that 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 is something that we can see moving forward rather than to you know just have either side shut each other down saying that you know one side wants to turn everybody straight and then the other side is trying to you know make everyone gay that's uh, make everyone gay or or like to oppress their freedom of religion right because I think I think it's a lot more nuanced than just like such broad strokes and the I would say the this is a pretty nice segue to the final part of the conversation because I think the this course is also complicated by the the context within within which we operate, which is Singapore, where three seven seven years is still a thing on 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 the penal code. And so I guess I will start where we ended with the report because I'm interested to to hear our thoughts about the future of LGBTQ rights in Singapore, if or when the court of appeal finds that three seven seven is unconstitutional, right? So maybe before that, could you tell us briefly about the ongoing constitutional challenges against section three seven seven A of the penal code in Singapore? Mm. So I guess for those who might not already know, um, Section 377A criminalizes gross indecency between men. And you know, we already had a previous set of constitutional challenges back in the 20 in, in 2010, and the Court of Appeal had ruled on that, those challenges to say that Section 377A is not unconstitutional, right? And then in 2018, when the Indian Supreme Court ruled that Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code, which criminalizes carnal acts against nature, was unconstitutional insofar as it criminalized consensual acts, consensual same-sex intimacy. That led to you know, a renewed like, fervor in Singapore. And, and then there were three sets of constitutional challenges to try to you know, strike 377A in Singapore down. So I think here it's important to highlight that Section 377A is in Singapore is quite different from Section 377 in India, right? Because I think there are, there are some who confuse the two of them. In Singapore, at least, Section 377 was already repealed back in 2007, right? And, and at that time, there was also you know, attempts to try to get Parliament to repeal Section 377A you know, at the same time, but, but that did not go through. So, so coming back you know, to the current day, so the Court of Appeal has already heard arguments and, and we can expect the decision anytime now or in the coming months. But I think what's interesting is it also, again, might not be as clear-cut in terms of how the court might rule. So the court might find that you know, 377A is unconstitutional completely. And then what would happen is it would probably require parliament to take certain actions to remedy the situation either by repealing Section 377A or that, you know, amending it such that its scope is much narrower. Yeah, so, so that is something that would be quite interesting to see in terms of the judgment. So just another point also, I think, is to highlight that one of the key differences between the current set of challenges and the 2014 appeal was the use of historical documents that were declassified that helped to point towards um, the object of Section 377A. Yeah, so this gets a bit technical because one of the arguments for why Section 377A is unconstitutional is on the basis of Article 12, which guarantees equality, so the right to equality. So the test for whether a law is unconstitutional because it breaches this right is the, called the reasonable classification test. And Okay, this, yeah, this gets a little technical. <laughs> and so part of this test is to determine what the object of the law is 
So that's where the historical documents come into play. Yeah, and one of the key arguments is essentially that Section 377A was actually only meant to deal with male prostitution. Yeah. So I think that that also brings up another quite interesting issue because in making such an argument, there's also the risk that we are further stigmatizing sex work, at least in the in the legal sense, or at least or even like larger like social cultural like understanding of these issues, right? So I think that that is something worth you know thinking about in terms of how we go about securing you know the rights for LGBTQ people or just in this case specifically gay men and the potential repercussions that may have on other communities. Yeah, so maybe just to share a little more, I think something that I was very struck by when I was looking into disability rights is the fact that when the gay movement succeeded in getting the World Health Organization to declassify homosexuality as a mental illness, it also further verified, you know, the, I guess, validity of the DSM which is something itself that is in contention, you know, with activists who consider themselves as, you know, mad or survivors of psychiatry, right? So, so I think, you know, these kinds of conversations would be worth having to talk about how we can, you know, advance our rights, you know, in the gay community, while at the same time also being able to uplift others rather than to push them down while we try to get ourselves out of oppression. That's really uh, that's I mean I mean I always like episodes when I when I learn and that's interesting because I I think that doesn't in pursuit of the the rights of a group right to what extent does it affect the rights of another and that that's something that doesn't often come into the radar right I mean the the, the boring question that sometimes you get is um how <clears throat> likely or how probable is the is is the call appeal likely to rule that that 377 is unconstitutional, right? So maybe we can take a different approach and ask you a different question, which is assuming that the section is repealed, what is next? You know, what, what happens thereafter? Assuming, as you said just now, I described, somehow parliament has to repeal it or narrow its scope. What happens next? And, or rather, what are some of the issues that should be on the radar of the community? Bearing in mind the tension of making sure that you're not doing it at the cost of other marginalized communities in that sense. Mm, yeah, I think it's really important not to lose steam if we do, you know, succeed with the 377A challenge because, because the, the fact is this law has, you know, dominated the gay rights discourse in Singapore for so long that, you know, other issues have, you know, taken a, a backseat and might not seem as important and, and it will take some, quite a bit of, you know, work from the activists to try to highlight, you know, what are these other issues that, that deserve or that need uh, work on, you know. So some of these issues are those that were already, you know, discussed in um, the UPR report, right? I think that kind of comprehensively provides an overview. But I think some of the key ones would be around, again, the enactment of anti-discrimination legislation and also removing existing regulations and policies that censor LGBTQ content. Because I think that really is the next frontier in terms of being able to further improve like the larger Singaporean community's understanding of LGBTQ people. Because that, that I think is one of the huge barriers. Yeah. Uh, in terms of other more specific issues, I think we really need to have a reckoning with the issue of drugs because it is something that is seriously affecting especially the gay community. But it's something that nobody really wants to talk about as well because 
it kind of proves you know the conservatives right that 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 you know that there are problems in in the gay community right but i think it's something that really needs to be talked about and and you know on the same thread that we were talking about intersectionality right in reckoning with this problem also i think it's about talking it's also about imagining you know what our laws on drugs should look like what our what our drug policies should look like and and i think the queer community can offer very important perspectives on this issue having had having been victims of laws that are unjust and laws that you know don't they are immoral i suppose uh, so i think that, that those conversations will be important to have moving forward and in fact are also conversations that we should be having whether or not section 377e is repealed yeah yeah that's uh i mean we're recording something i keep in mind is that we're recording this episode a day after June 26. I mean, in 2015, this was June 26 was the day where the US Supreme Court ruled that you know same-sex marriages are constitutional, that all states have to grant it. But what's happened in the US is that um yes, there have been liberties and freedoms granted to gay and queer folks, but now the focus has turned to trans folks, where there's a series of anti-trans legislations across the country that has moved. So a movement cannot be just focused on the particular subset, right? So the idea that, which I think I feel like you're alluding to is the movement has to not only be all inclusive, but safeguard and protect and advance the rights of everyone under this umbrella and not just be happy that you've moved ahead, but forget that those who might be persecuted or left behind in that sense. Yeah. And maybe on that, on that final note, and as a final question, you know, we talked, you talked about three of the seven challenges in the UPR and how they're connected and related to other disadvantaged groups or forms of precarity in Singapore. So, I mean, it sounds like a depressing note to end on, but what challenges do you foresee for the community um, in, the, in the future? I think one would be being able to bridge a generational divide across the community. I think it's something that recently surfaced on both on Twitter discourse around the meaning of pride, uh, you know, where there were much younger queer people who were saying that, you know, King and BDS and BDSM, you know, and nudity should not appear at pride. And I think that there's that ahistoricity there where people forget what where pride came from and what it really means. And I think that requires a lot of work around educating each other on queer history on sharing, you know, experiences across the generations. So I think that that is something we definitely need to work on because, you know, as we are recording this over the past few days, there has also been some local discussion around the use of the word fag in a show that was promoted as part of the Pink Fest programming in Singapore, right? And then there are some who say that, you know, the use of that word is something that cannot be, that's not allowed, that's inappropriate, you know, that is harmful. And then, you know, there's also others who have highlighted, you know, the history around this term. So I think that building that trust and understanding across generations would be important. In terms of other challenges, I think you rightly pointed out the, you know, development of like controversies around trans rights in the US. And I, I, I am quite worried about how that might pan out here. Because, you know, there you, in, in the US and also in the UK, you see like a growing trend of like TERFs, like those who are opposed to, you know, the transgender community who themselves are gay or like lesbian, right? 
And I think, again, this is a matter that requires us to really foster that understanding and that recognition that the oppression that we face comes from the same source instead of allowing ourselves to distinguish who we are from others to try to you know, normalize our own identities. Yeah, so I think, I think that, that is something that we really need to work on. I mean, currently, we don't see any signs that things will, will go bad, but I think it's something to keep in mind for our movement and to continuously you know, highlight how the challenges for trans people are, I think, quite different from the challenges that you know, the gay, bi, and queer community face you know, in terms of, because I think essentially it's two different categories, right? One being gender identity and expression and the other one being sexual orientation. So I think it's very important to build in that common understanding and, and the role of the activist community in that, yeah. And I think one of the final thing I would say and um, before thanking you for your participation and, and joining us is that it's not just about building, understanding, having more conversations and having more education, but having higher quality ones in the sense of being sensitive and attuned to the nuances and learning while being cognizant of power differentials and, and, and dynamics, being aware and willing to listen in that sense and then trying to see what the other side is. But while being cognizant that sometimes playing fields are not always level in that sense and then making sure that we have better quality conversations. Yeah. And, you know, on that note, I just want to thank you for spending time with us and then looking forward to, to seeing you in the States and sometime in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm.